Hello and welcome to the Filmmaking Stuff Podcast, where you'll get insider tactics on how to make, market, and sell your movie without the middleman. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome your host, LA-based motion picture executive, Jason Brubaker. Hey everybody, this is part three of the Craig Spector interview series. So if you missed parts one and two, you're going to want to go back and listen to them. That'll give you a lot of context. But Craig is a New York Times bestselling author and he's a screenwriter. He also happens to be one of my mentors. So I'm so excited to be able to share part three of his story in terms of how he was able to leverage his book deal to get into Hollywood. How did you go from all the work you were doing in the traditional publishing world and, and make your way into Hollywood because you've done some work in, in the motion picture industry too. And I'm, I'm sure obviously given the nature of this podcast, our, our listeners would love to hear about that. Well, it was funny. Uh, these odd things occur, odd things happen and weird little doors open and, and they open and then they close, you know? And it's like when the door opens, if you step through, it's a whole different world. What's your philosophy on that? I've been wanting to ask you. Like, so you you kind of the way you tell the story, it almost sounds like you you stepped into a lot of things, and but but you were methodical about it. I mean, early on, you were a planner. You and you and uh, John came up with a whole whole approach to how you were going to get this manuscript in this guy's office that started this whole thing off. But yet, all these other opportunities come. Are you one of these people that that really believes that you create your own reality, or do you just let things happen? In in a very big way, yes, absolutely, and and there's a there's a part of me that's still that, uh, you know, that sort of pissed off skater boy, you know, uh, skating up the stairs at the Hard Rock Cafe and waiting in the office and seeing the little sign on the wall that says, "There is no dress rehearsal. We are professionals. This is the big time." Right, because and, you're not you're not asking for permission with that philosophy. No, no, I'm not asking for permission, and also a lot of the things. Strangely, in my career, uh, for such as it is, uh, everything of any significance, of any great sort of life-changing significance that I ever did uh, was actually considered to be impossible by the common wisdom of the moment. Right, because I'm sure, just using the example of how you got that original publishing deal, I'm sure if you would have said that to people, and maybe you did, they probably would have thought you were crazy or that you were going to get arrested or both. Yeah, well, and I've been, I've been, I've been considered to be crazy uh, quite often in my life and career, you know. It's like, <laughs> but as I as I explained early on, it's like I, you know what I, I took a personality defect and I turned it into a career skill. You know, um, I used to just be weird, and now I'm a trained professional. <laughs> you know, it's like it's like the old it's like the old Hunter Thompson quote of like when the going gets weird, the weird turn pro. You know, well, um, yeah, and so as a pro, you're already a New York Times bestselling author. You, you, you were doing some of this work that at least I, I think got you focused a little bit on Hollywood. You know, being able to do the novelization of that of that film. Um, but then, what started opening doors for you? These little opportunities that came your way. What, what what's one that you remember that that kind of got you on that path? Uh, well, one day we got a call. Um, we got a call from uh our agents that uh somebody from an exec from new world cinema wanted to talk to us about doing a rewrite on a project and it's like cool okay fine you know and um you know we talked to her and 
it turns out, you know, we've got a we've got a recommendation from Clive Barker, whose own star had risen at that point. Um, right. And it turns out that there's this film that's in development right now that's, you know, having a problem, needs re- needs writers uh, to come in, except that, oh, yeah, this is what? This is like 1988, and it's dead bang in the middle of the Writers, the writers Guild strike. Oh, no. Yeah. Um, and, of course, my first question to my agents was like is this is this go- going against a strike you know because i'm not i'm not crossing strike lines you know um because ultimately it was a, a goal to eventually be in the writers guild and i knew enough to, i knew at that point enough to know that if you cross a writers guild strike line you are you'll never be in the guild um so that's it you know your your career as a screener is dead in the water because they will never let you in if you cross a strike line um, so, you know, you, at, at that point you're just a scab and that's it. Right. You know, um, and, and again, it's fun to hear that you had enough, you know, insight to, to know you had some boundaries, which I think is interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And it's just kind of like, you know, it's, it's a principled thing, but it's also just, you know, common sense survival of like, I'm not going to, I'm not going to blow up my, my, uh, career growth for short money, you know, um, and so I made made it a point of like uh, you know is this is this okay for us to do this? And then my agents go back and they talk to lawyers and they come back and say yeah it's okay. And I'm like okay then we'll do it. You know. And the next thing we know, you know, we're flown out to L.A. and you know we we get to L.A. and a fucking limo picks us up at the airport. <laughs> Right. Yeah. You know, of course. And it's like, okay, you know, and you, and you just sit there and look at it, I'm like, uh, but of course it does. You know, and I've never been to LA before, but of course, of course it, does. it does. Because you're the guy that was on the train that had an idea that, but of course, yeah. But of course, course it does. You know, and it's like, and so there we are sitting in the back of the limo, you know, driving through LA, you know, and playing with the controls in the back and open up the sunroof and stick your head out, you know, and just like, you know, and then, oh, look, it's got a mini bar. Da, 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 uh, oh, look at And then we're calling up to the driver. It's like, do you have any beer back here? You know, and he's like, no, sorry, sir. And he's like, could you stop and get some? <laughs> so, and so literally, literally, the, like the dude pulls the limo into a, whatever, a 7-Eleven. <laughs> we, go in and, we go in and buy some beer. You know, it's like, and then come back and, and now we can sit in the back of the limo and have a, have a cocktail. And that's good. You know, um, and they, they delivered us to the Beverly Hilton Hotel. Where we had uh, we had adjoining rooms, you know, and at that point we are now uh, on we're we're on computers because I insisted when we made the second deal, you know, um, I I literally I, I sort of like literally and figuratively you know took John by the lapels and I'm like we're getting computers. So did you have one of the laptops back then? Like they were the size of a suitcase? Oh yeah. Well, the thing about it is, is that, you know, when they, uh, in the interim of all this happening, um, you know, the very first Macintosh computer came out. Yeah. And, yeah, you're right. And when I saw that, uh, you remember that legendary. Oh yeah. Apple, the, ni- Apple computer yeah, the 1984 ad, ad you know, where they put a sledgehammer through the screen. Totally. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, I watched that and I'm like, wow, that's really cool. And I thought, you know, I've been waiting my entire life for somebody to invent this machine. You know, um, 
it, it, let me just pause for a second. That ad spoke to you. You were you were exactly the target demographic. For I that. was the target demographic for that ad, and um, and so I said to John, I'm like, you know, we need to get we need we need one of these. You know, we each need one of these. You know, and he's like, I like my trusty Smith Corona typewriter, and I'm like, no, we got to get one of these. You know, it's like, and when we got the the advance on the next deal, it's like, okay, uh, we are buying one of these computers. You know, and so we both computered up, but then, you know, it's portable. Yeah, it's a portable. There's a giant gig bag that it comes in and it weighs about 25 pounds, <laughs> you know, and you schlep this thing around like, you know, and so hey, anything's portable. If you have a moving truck, anything's portable if, with, a, with a hand cart, you know, um, it's like, you know, <laughs> so the production company, puts us in the uh, in adjoining suites in the Beverly Hilton. Um, and so there we are, uh, where we are going to do our our quiet little rewrite because there's a big goddamn strike going on. Um, and so we started working on the script, you know, and we'd have they'd come to the the hotel room and we'd have, you know, notes meetings. And um, so this is all really happening on the down low. Sure. You know, um, and and then we'd be writing, and then they'd come back, and we'd be writing, and they're constantly making changes and making changes and making changes, and you know, like they do, and you know, it, it what was there? We were supposed to be there for like two weeks to, or ten days. Um, we ended up being there for like six weeks. You know, um, just so you were just living out of a hotel, like holed up in Hollywood. <laughs> we we were the Beverly Hilton Billies. You know, um, <laughs> <Right>. and, <laughs> and we, and we don't know anybody, you know, and we're like, and they're always saying like, Oh, you should, have you seen LA your first time here? You should do this. You should do that. You should do that. It's like, we never leave the hotel room, you know? Um, and they're like, well, you should go. And I'm like, and I'm like, can you get us a car? You know? And they're like, well, yeah, you can rent a car. And so we go to this little, there's a little c- car p- rental place, like on a little Island right there near Wilshire Boulevard. You know, it used to be there. Um, and, uh, you know, we just go over there one day and just rent some ridiculously expensive car. Like a Maserati or something? It wasn't a Maserati, but it, it was something. And it wasn't a Bentley, but it was somewhere. It was it was in those upper classes of sedans. Just crazy. You know? Yeah, of course. Yeah, just crazy. You know, and we're sort of driving around, you know, and... Um, you know, and we got invited to a, a big dinner that the director was uh, was having, and we're sitting at this enormous round table at his house in the at his mansion in the hills. You know, uh, with all these different you know writers, producers, uh, not writers, but producers and various people. You know, we're all having dinner, and this one woman turned to us at one point and she said, "So you're you're new to L.A.?" You know, I was like, "Yes, we are." She's like, "Well, so how do you, how do you find L.A.?" You know, and I think. It, John actually looked at her a deadpan. And he's like, you know, it's, um, you know, John, John and I both looked at her and I'm like, uh, I said, well, the thing about, uh, the thing I noticed about LA is every cliche you've ever heard about it is true. You know? And then John jumps in and goes, <laughs> and then John jumps in and goes, but fleshed out. <laughs> it's like, and they sort of stared at us for a minute and then everybody laughs, you know? And it's like, yeah, what's wrong with you? What's wrong with you? It's like, you people are crazy. Um, and it got to the point where it was, it, it was becoming a really, really uh, frustrating experience because we couldn't make them happy. You know, um, 
And so we so, were so you kept doing rewrites and rewrites, rewrites, and rewrites on top of they, rewrites on top of rewrites. Yeah. And, and at a certain point, you know, it was getting to be so frustrating and, and we're just sort of holed up in there for so long that, uh, you know, one of the more, uh, one of the things we could do was you could, uh, on, on the TV in your room, you could call up your bill, you know, um, uh, the, how much your bill is so far. And we were also living off of room service at this point. Right. And so we'd be sitting in our respective, you know, rooms with the, the, uh, the door adjoining the suites, you know, and we call it up and I'm like, and it's like, how much have you cost them? <laughs> it's like, and it's like, and it's like $6,000. It's like, uh, I got seven. You buy dinner. <laughs> <laughs> and so he'd call room service and they bring it to his room. You know, it's, it's, you're just living a surreal life. I mean, at that it's, point, yeah, it, it's, it really is. It's really crazy. It's really crazy. Um, but then we had to, uh, we realized that fun's fun, but you know, we, we can't stay here forever. Right. It starts, you know, get, um, oddly it starts to get old after a while. Starts to get old. It's frustrating. Um, and because we're here to do a job and, and we can't do the job that they want us to do. And they uh, ended up, and this was also like, this is no great cinematic exercise we're doing. This is the, uh, uh, if you remember the, um, the classic film class of 1984, uh, this was the uh, sequel to that called class of 1999 <laughs> It's like <laughs> with killer, killer robots in high schools of the future controlled by gangs. The funny thing is you know, for that type of film, the fact that they would fly you guys out, let you run up whatever I know. show you're having. In the I know. <laughs> I know. It's crazy. You know? And so, you know, we're just like, you know, and we're new to all this and, and, but this is one of the interesting things. It's like, if you walk into these kind of realms and if you don't broadcast the fact that, you really just don't know what you're doing. They won't know unless you tell them. Right. Every, everybody just assumes you, you know what you're doing. This is your life. That's who you are. Yeah. And one of the things I picked up about Hollywood, even, you know, my first exposure to Hollywood, and this is like, maybe like, this is like 1990 we're talking about. Um, you know, I, I said that, you know, Hollywood is, a somebody asked me what I thought about, you know, Hollywood movies. I'm like, I said, it's really weird. Hollywood is a town where everybody wants to be first to be second, you know, because being first can get you killed. <laughs> you know, being first can get you fired. You don't want to be the first person through the door. You want to be the second person through the door, but you want to go through the door second really fast. And if you go through this door, if you go through the door second, and you do it fast enough, you can step over the body of the guy who went through first, and then you can say you were first. What do they say? Like pioneers end up with arrows in their back or something? Yeah, yeah. Pioneer is the guy with the arrows in his back. Yeah, I mean, and, and Hollywood. And I also realized, you know, when I told people, it's like Hollywood is is this town full of incredibly smart, incredibly talented, incredibly driven people who would not know what their food tasted like unless they looked over and saw somebody more important than them eating it at another table. Your, your experience in Hollywood, um, you know, I got to say that's an interesting perspective and I'm fortunate enough to not 
have had that experience, I guess, but I'm kind of sad that I didn't have that mm-hmm. experience. Yeah. Yeah. And, and these are all, strangely enough, these are all such, these are OG. That's what I mean. Like I, I know guys like you that are pragmatic, you know, and when I think of Craig Spector, I think there's a hardworking pragmatic guy that made a name for himself. I don't necessarily think about all the pretentious stuff. And I guess either, either I'm the pretentious person or I just don't attract that into my life as much. And it sounds like to me, at this point, you're still new to it all. You're getting flown out here. I mean, that's a that's a different experience. I mean, I came out here in a car. I drove across the country. You you got flown out first class and wined and dined. I mean, that that would definitely yeah. change my whole experience with Hollywood in general. Yeah, it's 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 a really odd. It's an odd entry, you know. Um, and so, what happened after the robot movie? Because you, you did some more work in in LA. You continued to do some script doctoring and rewrites and that kind of stuff. Well, there's actually there's two there's two great little bits about the uh, the robot movie. Um, one was you know I had been out at the pool or something, you know I was out of, away from my computer and out of my room. And and that, that's where Trader Vix was still there at that time, right? So you yes can- yes Trader Vix was there. Yeah, and um, you know and there's no internet to get on, you know so right. there, uh, you know and there's no cell phones, um, and. You know, I come back from the pool and I come into my room, you know, and I look through the door and John is uh, sitting on the bed in his room and he's got the phone up to his ear and he's gone like just just ash white, you know, like all the blood has drained out of him and somebody is screaming at him. Oh, no. You know, uh, you know, and I'm like, what's going on? And he's like, Harlan is on the phone. (laughs) You know, Harlan Ellison, you know. Is on the phone, you know, and, and he's, he's freaking out, you know, and, and I'm like, I'm like, what's going on? You know, and I go, and I had, I had met Harlan a couple of times, you know, um, and I always loved Harlan, you know, um, and I pick up the phone, I'm like, Harlan, what's going on? And, and Harlan's like, you guys, what are you doing? You know, don't, you know, there's a strike going on in, you know, it's like, you know, it's like, you guys are idiots. They're going to get, they're, they're going to kill you. You'll never work in this town again. And I'm like, and I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. It's like, what? You know, it's like, look, I talked to, you know, I talked to uh, our agents, you know, they said everything's okay. He's like, I don't care whether you talk to your agents. <laughs> so, so you've been found out. Yeah, well, no. And Harlan's like, you know, come to my house, come to my house. I will hide you. I will bring you personally to the guild. I will bring you personally to the guild to plead your case. You guys, you don't know what, you don't know how much trouble you're in. And I'm like, holy shit. You know, it's like Harlan. Okay, fine. We'll go to your house. Where are you? You know, um, and he gives us directions. And that was the first time I ever went to Harlan's little magic house up in the hills, you know? Um, and we go out there, but, you know, immediately get off the phone with Harlan. And before we go out there, I have to call our Asians back east and go, okay, there's a problem here. <laughs> you know, we, you know, I just got my ass handed to me by Harlan Ellison. And apparently we're, we're in a lot of trouble, you know, and you said this was okay. You know, so we're, you know, here's what's going to happen. You know, we are halting, uh, we're halting d- production on this immediately until we get this sorted out. Like nobody's writing anything until we get this sorted out. So somebody, yeah, and just and just uh, you know, I'm sorry to cut you off there for a second, Craig. But Harlan Ellison, I mean, that guy's a legend in terms of like the stuff that he's written. Oh yeah, um, Star Trek and quite a few other um, 
or, or at least some of the series. Oh, yeah. and, and, Harlan, uh, Harlan uh, you know, who, who sadly, you know, left us a few years ago. Um, Harlan was a legendary writer, but he was also a legendary pain in the ass. You know, um, <laughs> well, it sounds like and, he was looking out for you guys in his and, own weird way. And he was, and he, he was, he was Uncle Harlan, you know, and he was also legendarily fearless, you know, um, and especially fearless in terms of dealing with, you know, Hollywood executives and this kind of stuff. And uh, Harlan didn't take no shit off of nobody, you know, um, and so, you know, we're over at Harlan's house. And in the meantime, you know, he's giving us the tour of his house and everything. And then he's, he's calmed down a little bit, but he's just trying to explain to us. He's trying to school us about like how much potential trouble we could be in, you know, um, da, 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 da. And, you know, he's in the meantime, you know, I had given my agents Harlan's number at his house, you know, and it's like, call us when you, know, we're going over here now. So call us as soon as you know something, but until this is sorted out, you know, we are stopped, you know? Um, and so, or because at this point, your, your sense of when you took the time to listen to authority, which was rare, it was your agents or people that you thought, you know, had your best interest. So of course you'd fly out to LA and, yeah. and do the rewrites. And now here's this guy coming along who has like, some real clout and he's saying guys you're you're doing it all wrong and you and you may have screwed yourself like permanently you know um yeah so you, I'm sure you're, great did you think the party was going to end at that point i just knew that uh, well one one thing about me is like i uh you know it's just personality traits and it's good to know how you're individually wired you know how you how you are uniquely wired and it's good to be honest with yourself about how you're wired when you when you go to get into this game and two things about me is I never panic and I never rattle. Interesting. Um, I just don't, you know, and it's like, and if somebody comes at me, it's like, well, come at me, but I'm, you know, I don't, I don't blink, you know, um, I just, but if I'm in a firefight, it's like, okay, I'm in a firefight. Now what, you know, um, and I fight, you know, um, so but I was, you're over there at his mansion waiting for your agent to call. Yeah. Yeah. And, and just kind of, you know, and, and getting schooled and et cetera, you know, and, and then all of a sudden the phone rings, you know, and you know, uh, he answers and it's, and he's like, it's for you, <laughs> <laughs> you know, and I call and it's, it's our agents and everybody has, you know, calls have gone around and, you know, it's gone from our agents to the studio, to their lawyers, to everybody, everybody, everybody has dialed in. And the, the net result was that um, we were doing this. We, we fell under a loophole in the strike clause, uh, according to the Guild. And the Guild's position on us doing this rewrite, uh, because we were not Guild members, we had never been Guild members, et cetera, et cetera, um, their position was... You know, they would prefer if no writers worked during the strike. Uh, but in this case, uh, the guild has no position on us doing this rewrite. So, uh, you know, so I got off the phone and I explained word for word verbatim what I was just told to Harlan. And Harlan's like, oh, why didn't you say so? <laughs> Such. <laughs> And and then we ordered we ordered you know we ordered sandwiches you know <laughs> right and that was it you know um 
so then we begin again, but then now we're still back into the, you know, we're, we're writing and we're, we can't make them happy. We can't make them happy. And, and they keep coming up with ideas and we keep executing the ideas that they're saying. And then they don't like the, ex- the ideas. And we're realizing we, we have a problem because we were so out of the loop. Yeah. Really? Um, like, how can we fix this film if you won't let us fix the film? You know, um, and at one point, uh, we actually had to go sort of go behind the back of the studio um, because we had, uh, you know, along the way, uh, become friends with uh, one of the guys who was doing the special effects on the movie, who was actually doing the mechanics, like building the killer robots that were the teachers. Yeah. And so, you know, we got in our ridiculously expensive uh, automobile and drove over to his effects studio. Right, because I was just sitting in the parking lot, like burning through somebody else's money. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. <laughs> um, and so we we you know drove over one night, didn't tell anybody, just drove over one night, took a tour of his studio. You know, he showed us what he was building. You know, and so this was really cool. You know, this was like going to like a great toy store. Sure. You know. Um, and then while we're there, it's like, wow, could, you know, and then you, we start having ideas, you know, it's like, wow, so could we do this? Could we, could we have the teacher, like when the teacher does this in this scene, you know, and does that, could we do this? And he's like, oh yeah, I can make it do that and this and this and that, you know, and we came back like with all the, you know, I'm taking notes, you know, and it's like, oh shit, this is great. You know, it's like, you know, and we go back and, you know, we actually wrote a draft of the script that would work. You know, that they could shoot that would be, you know, in line and budget and everything and would work and would look good and be cool. And it was all because, you know, we we sort of we didn't stay in our lane. Right. You know, we we just went out and got you know, it, it to me. It's like we analyzed the problem, or at least I, you know, for my part, I analyzed the problem that we were facing. Uh, I analyzed the, the things that were in our way. And without like stepping on anybody's toes or pissing anybody off, I just quietly broke the fucking rules and got it done. And you did it for the greater good of the project. For the greater good of the project, yeah. And that that was for me a big lesson in how to do things, uh, not just in Hollywood but just in general. You know, because it's all about. It's all about learning the rules of the game so that you then know what it is you have to break. Yeah. Because if you want to do anything, if you want to do anything of any significance at a certain point, you're going to have to break the rules, which doesn't make rule breaking just for the sake of rule breaking a particularly smart idea. Uh, But it's just saying if, if you just, try to realize your dream by, you know, just coloring within the lines, staying in your lane and, uh, and doing as you're told, you're never really going to achieve much of anything. You know? Um, yeah. The idea of being discovered is, is such one of these like Hollywood fantasies. And if you look at everything that you've been doing thus far in your career and to date, by the way, again, it's just this ongoing thing. What's fun about talking with you, Craig, because, you know, I consider you a mentor. You're one of these, and I mentioned that at the beginning of our interview, but you're the first guy with like Hollywood clout that actually took time to talk to me. And yeah, and I, I kind of, I, I kind of kicked your ass a little bit when we were talking in those early conversations, didn't I? We, we had some talks. Yeah. 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 
Although, yeah, we, we had some talks, but you know, I think you might've instilled, I mean, I've always been somewhat of a risk taker, but I think you were one of the guys that reinforced this idea that I now live by the philosophy. I mean, all the filmmaking stuff listeners that, that are here, they know that like one of my core philosophies is to never ask for permission. And we've hit on that a few times in here, but it's not until we're having this conversation where I'm like, wow, I was seriously influenced by Craig. Um, and you know, this idea of like waiting for somebody to discover your work, it, it can happen, right? You can win a screenwriting contest if you're lucky. And I think that's decent enough and that and people are going to win. You got to enter, you got to play. Um, but man, why wait around? Like that seems like such a, it seems so dependent on somebody else. Well, yeah, along it, does. And, and it does. And, and, and it's in terms of like, look, uh, you're, if you wait for somebody else to give you permission to be who you really are, you're going to wait a long time. If you wait for somebody to give you permission to do what it is you know you have to do, you're going to wait a really long time. You know, so you might as well just, you know, uh, roll the dice and say, fuck it. And uh, look, it's all rock and roll to me. You know, um, just. Every single thing, I'm, I'm not kidding, every single thing that I ever did of any significance in my entire career was impossible to do at the time I did it, according to the common accepted wisdom. Yeah, that, that's what, I mean, you bet, you bet reality. Yeah, it's like you bent your reality. I don't even know what you did. You did some sort of like Jedi mind trick on the world. <laughs> It's called bullshit. Right. <laughs> yeah, but bullshit with credibility, right? You have credibility because at the end of the day, you know, going back through this whole story that you've been sharing with us, you got it done. Mm -hmm. It wasn't like you were just – because, you know, you, you were mentioning a few minutes ago about your experience in Hollywood. And I, I think, you know, although I haven't experienced like sort of the pretentious thing where people are looking to see what other people are eating on their menu or whatever, what I do experience time and time again are people – that are still working on the same project that they've been working on for the last 12 years and they haven't made any progress whatsoever. Yeah. Yeah. If you're working on a project and a decade's gone by and you haven't gotten any further, you, you need to be working on another project. Yeah. You're you making know? some excuses, I think. Yeah. Well, if you want excuses, you know, uh, there's no end to them. You know, there's, there's, there's no end to the number of perfectly good excuses, excellent excuses, world-class excuses to not do what it is you say you want to do. So if you're if you're not doing it, uh, and and somebody asks you why, and you just got all these excuses, you know, well maybe you don't want to do it. Maybe it's not the right thing to do. Maybe you don't want to do it. Maybe you're scared. Well, you know what? You should be scared, but you shouldn't be afraid of being afraid. You know, it's like a certain amount of fear comes with the territory. You got to get in front of your fear, and at the end of the day. Uh, at the end of the proverbial day, it's like, and I see this a lot. I see this a lot with young people, uh, you know, with millennials and, uh, you know, who've literally grown up in a world that has never not had the internet. You know, um, I watched one of those things popped into my Facebook feed, uh, yesterday. Actually, it's like, uh, I think it was from funny or die. Uh, but it was one of those, uh, it's a whole series of like, you know, uh, you know, showing kids, you know, some ancient thing at this point, you know? Uh, 
Oh, right. I've seen that where they show them like a tape yeah, recorder and, or something. And, and, and this was like, you know, they, yeah. they had a lot of like, uh, you know, young people, teens or early twenties. And they, and they were, they were showing them windows 95, you know, on, on an old computer running windows 95. And I mean, it was a five, which was amazing by the way, cause you could open up yeah. separate tabs yeah, and that was and- like a new thing. You can open up more than yeah, one window. Then, you know, and here's this big fucking honking desktop computer, and they're staring at it like, oh my God. You know, it's like, it's like, and, uh, and, the, and this, you know, the, the interviewer's like, now turn it on, and just watching them try to figure out how to turn the thing on, you know, and then watching them watch it boot up. And they're just like, oh my God, oh my God, you know, because um, they've never seen anything like this before, you know. Um, and, you know, a lot of this stuff. Is uh, I see with uh, with the generation of writers and creatives who have grown up with all of this, grown up with the internet, and grown up with social media, et cetera. It's like these people have the certain certain aspects of this. Uh, it's just in their DNA. It's in their blood. They, I mean, they're you know when they were yeah. when they were toddlers, you know they couldn't. They couldn't write cursive. They couldn't write their name in cursive, but they can get around on an iPad. You know, um, they they just know the technology because they were born with the technology, and they know how to brand. You know, they know the importance of their brand and getting themselves out there. I think one of the one of the most fascinating and absolutely ludicrous things that I have uh, I have seen is I, I watched the documentary about the Fire Festival. Oh yeah, and uh, the two documentaries about the Fire Festival, and just the whole idea of somebody who's an influencer, you know, um, who's actually getting paid money to be an influencer was fascinating to me uh, because they're they're just all about their brand, and I look at all that and I think, well, that's great, that's really important, that's an excellent skill set to have, but that does not replace the work. You know, and nothing is ever going to replace the work. And so you got to keep that really, to me, you're well advised to keep that firmly in your mind at all times. It's like the song and dance is a song and dance. But, you know, at a certain point, you just got to sit down and do the fucking work. And the work is going to speak for itself. Well, up until this point in in our conversation, you know, you talked about all the wonderful things that were happening and, and you had a lot of momentum at this point in your career. Um, but I also know enough about you to know that things weren't always bright and shiny and, and fun. So what, what happened after your experience in L.A. and the screenplay and uh, the John Skip, Craig Spector relationship? How did things start to change in your life? Well, the Skip and Spector partnership ran for about 10 years. That's, that's um, pretty good. I mean, that's a substantial amount a, of time. It's a pretty good run, um, and it ended. Um, it ended before before it got to where I wanted it to go, uh, because Skip Inspector was sort of. Uh, it had been Skip Inspector had been described to me by an editor in New York as we're sort of bumping up against the bottom of the glass ceiling. Interesting, you know, where we were. We weren't quite there yet, but if we could just do this and that, you know, we could finally punch through and be in that sort of elevated author class of household name, you know, um, and we never quite got there. Uh, and before the partnership had kind of run it naturally run its course, 
and it was just time for us to go do other things. You know, um, we were creativity. Like, were you still as creative with each other? Did you at times feel like you were going through the motions? Well, we had grown in different directions, um, different life directions and different creative directions. And, you know, toward the end, we were uh, like the last book we wrote, uh, Animals. Um, I mean, we were really, the partnership was really being held together by contractual obligations and barbed wire. You know, it, yeah. it's just kind of like nobody wants us to stop being this machine, but uh, the machine isn't working like it used to. And it's, and, and it's not any fun anymore. Really, like the moments where it's like uh, you know, fun are few and far between, and it just feels like a lot of a lot of grind, you know. Um, and I know that uh, you know historically, uh, John wanted to leave uh, well before I did because I wanted us to get what I wanted Skip Inspector to do was you know finally reach a point where we had punched through and gotten into that brand name status, and from there we could, you know, the, the brand name could be an entity unto itself and we could each go off and do, you know, whatever projects the hell we wanted to do and then periodically come back and, you know, feed the brand name machine, another, another piece of work. Um, but it did like, like a band like because a band. you have that music background and, and that's you guys going solo for a little bit and then coming yeah. back and doing yeah. another concert. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, you know, and also like, you know, Skip Inspector did 10 years and ran its course and, and did like, uh, what six novels and a novelization and uh, edited two uh, very successful anthologies that really predated the walking dead by several decades in terms of putting uh, zombies in, in literature and putting zombies on the cultural map in an interesting sort of way, um, which was following off of uh, George Romero's work largely. Um, yeah, we edited Book of the Dead and Book of the Dead Two, and uh, and when we edited Book of the Dead, uh, the first story we got back was a original story from Stephen King, which basically guaranteed that the book was going to be a bestseller, um, which it was. And then it was just it was really just kind of time to do something else. We had to go our separate ways, and the way I've come to describe it is like Skip Inspector. It it, it came together like a rock band, and and it broke up like a rock band. <laughs> it's like it was a big messy breakup, you know. Um, like like a band has a big messy breakup, you know. And um, and because you you guys were buddies, I mean, oh, yeah. that, that you came up together. You 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 started. I mean, you forged an entire career together. Yeah, yeah. But it's just like, you know, when you when you hear about bands breaking up in like, you know, absolutely awful sort of ridiculous ways. Yeah, we did that, you know, um, and it was it was really a kind of a toxic divorce, you know, and nobody wanted the machine to stop like the agents and everybody though they did not want it to stop. But, uh, you know, at a certain point I had to tell them, it's like, look, this is over. It's not happening anymore. You know, uh, it's just not. It's ended, you know, um, when that happened. um you know, what happened to you? Well, I realized at a certain point, at that point, I realized I have to, I have to completely reinvent myself again. Yeah. You know, um, and I have to, uh, and I have to, because you've always been identified as, as this writing partnership. I can't imagine like now you have to go solo. Well, yeah. And I had to, I had to put it out to the world that my, my first name is not ampersand. You know, it, <laughs> it's like, uh, my name is not end Craig Spector. You know, uh, it's like, <laughs> And really, I had to put it out that I'm not half of something. I'm all of something else. 
Hey everybody, Jason Brubaker with Filmmaking Stuff. I'm so excited to be able to share this conversation with you. I mean, Craig Spector is one of these working professionals that doesn't just come on a podcast to talk about how great their career is, but he's one of these people that's you know not afraid to tell you how it is. And I think that transparency is so authentic and so refreshing. And I'm just I'm overly excited to be able to share that with you. We have another Craig Spector installment coming up, so you're going to want to tune in for that. But in the meantime, again, if you're just getting to know Craig Spector and his work, I highly recommend you do a Google search for Craig Spector or next time you're on Amazon or any of those places where you buy books, uh, do a search for Craig Spector, pick up one of his books, give it a read. I know you're going to love it. Thank you for listening. This has been another episode of the Filmmaking Stuff podcast with Jason Brubaker. If you like our show and want to get more filmmaking info, make sure you check out filmmakingstuff.com and join us every week for new filmmaking tactics. Until next time, take action and make your movie now.